We are in part three of our Empowered Church series, walking through the book of Acts line by line. And I want to begin by talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm going to get into is a complicated subject, but I think it's something we need to walk through. Why is the Holy Spirit such a big deal? Okay, because if we're going to do the year of power, it's really the year of the Holy Spirit. Can't have power without the Holy Spirit. So we're going to spend a lot of time understanding him and how he operates. So we got to talk about the nature of God. God is a very complex being. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in such a way that theologians and scholars and philosophers refer to God as being, in a sense, unknowable incomprehensible. And so some of us could say, well, well, if I can't ever know. There's no point in getting into it. I mean, who cares, right? God is what he is. Well, hold on. I think because we need to have relationship with him, we do need to put together the pieces that we are given. Now, I am a fan of jigsaw puzzles. Now, I, it's totally nerdy, so to make myself feel better, how many of you are nerds with me? Praise the Lord. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, love jigsaw puzzles. Do you guys remember the big clunky ones when you were a little kid, when you were a little baby, right? That is our theology, right? So, like, God is this beautiful panoramic view, and we just have the big, oh, I moved a big rock, right? You know, that kind of thing. We're going to take the pieces God's given And we're going to organize our block puzzle, and we're going to do what we can so we can understand God a little bit more. So I want to talk about how the Trinity works, okay? So I need you to write down stuff. If you're a note taker, write down these pieces. There are two truths that we must reconcile, really when it comes to God. There are two truths we must reconcile. Number one, write this down. There is one God. You're like, ooh, this is an easy puzzle. I like this one, right? I can do this with my eyes closed. All right, there's one God. Are we serious about the one God thing? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. How do we know that? Well, it was in the Ten Commandments. That's kind of important. And the Shema, which the Jews would repeat three times a day, Deuteronomy 6, 5, Hear, O Israel, our God is one. All Abrahamic religions, Islam. Judaism, Christianity, all teach monotheism. We do not teach polytheism. There is no such thing as what you studied in high school about mythology and, oh, the Romans had all these gods and the Greeks had all these gods and blah, blah, blah. We do not teach multiple gods. Is that correct? All right, lock it down. Write down number two. Number two, God reveals himself in multiple persons. Now, that's where things get weird. God reveals himself in multiple persons. How in the world does that work? Well, we don't have any of those here. We don't have any ways of explaining it within our universe. So whatever analogy that we talk about is usually going to break down. And when I talk about three persons, here's what I mean. God reveals himself in three distinct and separate personalities. They are all united, all unified, all of one mind as God, but they can operate independently of one another, and they have different roles and functions. How does that work? Well, a lot of people have had analogies in the past. As I told you, they all kind of fall apart, and somebody's like, 
he's like an egg. You know, that kind of thing, right? You guys have heard that one. Or it's like a mixed drink. It's like an ingredient with a cake. It's like, you know, and we have all these different ways of trying to explain three in one. But the one that I kind of caught on to was really talking about how God appears and disappears and dimensional travel and all that stuff. But the simple way that they explained it was that if you can imagine my three fingers coming up over the top of the page, you can't see the rest of it. And you can notice they all operate independently. As a matter of fact, they look a little bit different. You would like, oh, that one has a ring. Oh, well, that one is the pointer finger, right? And they all can move independent. Now, ultimately, if you saw the whole, you would see that it's all one, correct? And so, in a sense, it's a little bit like that. Remember, we're just making a big wooden clunky puzzle, right? But we're trying to learn a little bit more about who God is. Now, how do the three work together in Scripture? If there's one God, but we know there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're not gods, there's one God, how do they operate together? Well, there's a couple times in the Bible when it's blatant. So, for example, let's talk about creation, the creation of the universe that we have. The Father, the Bible says, spoke the world into existence. Remember, let there be light. But we also find out in the Gospel of John, John 1 1, it was talking about that Jesus was the word of God, the logos, right? So when the father spoke, what he spoke out was the son. The son created things and the Holy Spirit shaped and fashioned them and organized them. So God created the universe. How? His three different distinct personalities all did their role and it was done. Okay, cool. We talked last week about the baptism of Jesus, That meant the father's up in the sky saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The son is in the water and the Holy Spirit is coming down like a dove. You guys remember that? Three, same thing about salvation. The father initiated salvation because it says, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only what? begotten son. So now it shifts to the next one. The father initiated it. The son acquired it by the cross, but the Holy Spirit actuates it and makes it true for us. So when you hear all of God together, that's when we got the personal name of Yahweh. Okay, so if you ever seen your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the fancy way of using the personal name of God. Who got that? Moses got that from the burning bush. Who should I say is sending me? And God's like, you wouldn't get it. He's like, I know, but I got to have something. He's like, all right, I'll give you something. I am. He's like, well, that's not very helpful. And he goes, I know, but I couldn't explain it any other way. He's like, okay. So he ran with Yahweh. Whenever you have Yahweh, you got combo God, right? You have like all of him, right? Now, nobody can see all of him. So he reveals himself in at least three persons. I say at least because I don't know how complex God is. All I know is that to humanity and in the Bible, we at least have three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, cool. My main point this morning is that it is unfortunate that many scholars, theologians, and writers have had to write books like 
the forgotten God. What do I mean? We're all cool talking about the Father. We're all cool talking about the Son. Nobody wants to talk about the Holy Spirit. And he's just kind of the other one, right? Now, why is that? It's simply human nature. We like what's familiar. So we're like, oh, well, let's talk about the Father. I know him. He's totally old. He has a really long beard and a big chair, right? Which sounds like Santa Claus, side note, right? And you're like, oh, and then Jesus, I like it. He's a nice Middle Eastern man. I like him. He's very friendly, right? And he's got those eyes, right? Okay, but then we go, and the Holy Spirit, well, when he's described in the Bible, they're like, he's like the wind. You never see him coming. And, he go, and you're like, I can't draw that with crayons. I don't know what's happening right now. I have a hard time relating to him. And all of that is quite the tragedy because the Holy Spirit is the most present member of the Trinity that we deal with today. If there's anyone you should know the best, it's the Holy Spirit. Let's even talk about communication. The Father in the Bible tends to always speak from a distance. The Son comes up alongside and walks with you, but the Holy Spirit goes in you. That's way more personal. Let's talk about the whole sending. The Father tagged the Son who tagged the Holy Spirit, so who's it? Holy Spirit is it right now, all right? So that you got to know him. He's the one that you're interacting with. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one empowering us, teaching us, comforting us, partnering with us, talking to us, moving through us, convicting us, and it goes on and on and on. If there's any member of God that you should be personal with, it's the Holy Spirit. There is no Christianity without interaction with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. The Holy Spirit changes everything. The Holy Spirit changes everything. Literally, he is the game changer. Now, last week, if you were uh, with us in in part two, we were talking a little bit about baptism of the Holy Spirit because you're going to hear that phrase come up, and I knew I couldn't do both, right? So we talked about that. You might want to go back and listen to that. But what I explained was in our story, Jesus was taking off. He was leaving this world to go back up into heaven, and he told his followers, there was about 120 of them, he's like, guys, there's a whole bunch of stuff we need to do. So I need you all to hang out here. Don't go home yet. I need you all to hang out here because I am going to give you the promise from the Father, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, who's going to empower you, get you locked and loaded so you can go do what we need to go do. And they were like, okay. That's where we left off in the story. We're going to pick it up. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 1? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. If you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It is page 909 in that Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to be reading at an ESV. Uh, so if it's a little bit different than your version, that's why. Here we go. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, let's pause. This is perhaps one of the most famous and certainly the most pivotal stories of all Christendom and certainly in the New Testament. You are seeing the inauguration, the empowerment of the Christian church. The very same empowerment that we are operating in today. It all kicks off right here, right now. This is the big story. So let's tear it apart a little bit. It says, and when the day of Pentecost arrived, and you're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I thought this Pentecost was all about the Holy Spirit coming. You can't call it in the Bible the day of Pentecost when you're only learning about how it became the day of Pentecost. Pause. Pentecost was always a holiday for the Jews. It was on the calendar way before this. As a matter of fact, it's one of their most famous festivals. It's actually also known as the Festival of Weeks or the Festival of First Fruits. It's a main celebration. As a matter of fact, the best way to celebrate it, people would pilgrimage into Jerusalem. Why? Because the primary meaning of the festival or the holiday or the celebration was that you would say, God, you've given us this amazing harvest. It happens in late spring. We're going to take the first and the best. We're going to pull a portion of it together and we're going to offer it to you. Of course, that was God's way of saying, hey, don't you ever think you're providing for yourself? You're not. I'm always your provider, period. And lest you get greedy, you always take a portion of the best. I don't want the worst. I want the best. Give a portion of the best and give it over to me. That way, your money doesn't own you. In that, they would go, well, that's great. I got my best. I want to offer it as an offering. Where can I go? Best place to offer an offering was where? The temple. The temple was still standing when this story was occurring. So everybody would pour into Jerusalem, and it would be packed that's this day. So why did God pick this day for the Holy Spirit to fall? Well, I guess probably the, the most common guess is first fruits means you've now seen something amazing, but wait, there's so much more. What a beautiful day to be able to say you're going to see the fall of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church, but wait, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, how beautiful is that? But there's also more. You see, even though Pentecost was about the festival of weeks, which by the way, do you know why it's called Pentecost? I kid you not. I've been a pastor forever and I just learned this this week. Okay, anybody know why it's called Pentecost? There you go. It's super simple. Pentecostus in Greek means 50th. And what happens is, whenever the Passover, and the Passover is the big deal, right? When the Passover hits from the first Sunday of Passover, you count out 50 days, that's Pentecost. Because Passover moves, it's always moving. So like this year, it's May 28th on our calendar, right? But it's going to be different next year. But you always count 50th, so what does Pentecost mean? 50th. That's it. Very basic, very simple. Okay, so there's another thing. Even though it was really about the first fruits, right? There was another special event 
that occurred at this exact same moment in the year in Jewish history. What was that? This was one that people focused on a lot. It actually was the same time frame as God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, if you remember, that was the Ten Commandments. That was the fire up on the mountain, the smoke, the scary, right? Whoa, Moses goes up there and God talks to him directly. That's this. So the Jews would tend to link the law with Pentecost. How incredible is it that all these thousands of years later, God ushers in the new covenant on the exact same time frame with fire and says, we're doing a new thing. Powerful, right? All right, let's keep moving forward. Says they were all together. 120 people all together, right? That's, that's pretty awesome. But it, it makes me think, was it the unity that God needed for him to bring the Holy Spirit? No. How do we know that? Because he was always going to come on, the, on Pentecost, whether they were organized or not organized. doesn't matter. It was already predetermined. Unity didn't bring the Holy Spirit. It just allowed it to be a positive experience. I've told you this before, and I'll tell you again and again and again. Every beautiful move of God, every historic revival on this planet has been ruined by people not liking other people and not getting along. You want to talk about the Welsh revival? You want to talk about the Azusa Street revival? You want to talk about any of the great awakenings? It's all the same thing. God comes down, does something amazing, and then we can't handle it. And we just argue and fight and go, I don't like the color of their skin, and I don't like this person's opinion, and I hate their denomination, and I can't believe it happened in their church and not in my church, and we ruin it every time. It's the only reason why we can't have a sustained move of God. We can't stay on the same page. Unity allows God's fire to remain. We build the altar, he brings the fire, and then we break the altar. It doesn't even make any sense. And so as I was writing this message, I was thinking to myself, why is unity so difficult? Because here's how I kind of think through processes. I go back to the default simplest form. Why in the world is unity difficult when people are so greedy? Wouldn't you assume that since we're all little greed monsters, we would all get together? Here's why. Because now I have my money and some of yours. I have my brains and some of yours. Why wouldn't we want to pool our resources? If you look back in history, the Tower of Babel only could happen when everybody pulled stuff together. So if we want more, if we want best, why wouldn't we get together? And then it occurred to me, there is a reason. There's one thing we want more than more, and that is control. The only way you can have unity is if everybody releases control. And nobody's doing that. You see, I lead a movement in the greater Sacramento region along with another gentleman. I'm the vice president of City Pastors, which is a unity movement of churches in Sacramento, where we try to get hundreds of pastors together. You guys, it's like herding cats. <laughs> it's brutal. 
for decades they worked on it. I came in only in the last decade. And those pastors couldn't even get in the same room together. They couldn't even hang out at the same table together. Nobody, why? Because there was too many differences and everybody had their way. What I'm trying to tell you is, praise the Lord, we've worked through a lot of that stuff. But here's the thing. Do you really believe that when I talk about a unity movement, do you really think that I agree with all the pastors? Do you really think that every denomination agrees? Do you think that we all sit around the table and go, we are all conformists? Do you think that really happens? It never happens. Here's why. I never said conformity. I said unity. Unity always assumes diversity. I'm not looking for cookie cutter. I'm not looking for same. What I'm looking for is people that are vastly different that say Jesus's agenda is bigger than my own. That's how unity happens. Amen? So that's what we are a part of. In this room, we are never gonna agree on virtually anything. But at some point, we need to say at the foot of the cross, our own personal hangups don't matter as much. And I think we need to be about his agenda and not ours. All right, let's keep moving forward. They're in some upper room. We're not sure why it is, but it says, and the sound from heaven came, and it sounded like a mighty rushing wind, like a windstorm, like a hurricane. Now, it didn't come in with wind. Everyone's hair wasn't like, woo, right? It just, the sound came in, okay? Now, this is really interesting. Why wind? I was reading a commentary, and of course, the guy was way smarter than me, and he was citing all these different things, and I was like, yeah, yeah. But then something occurred to me, and I went, oh, that's power. And here's what it was. Do you guys realize that in Greek, the same word for wind, breath, and spirit is pneuma? Did you know that? It's all the same word. So... Like Jesus did a little play on words when he was talking to Nicodemus and he was like, the holy pneuma is like the wind pneuma and you can't see where it's going. He was playing with the same words. Why is this important? Do you remember I cited last week that in the gospel of Luke at the last supper, Jesus said to his team, Guys, you're going to need the Holy Spirit in order to get some stuff done. You're going to need his presence. And it says what? And he breathed on them and they said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. What a weird way to give them the Holy Spirit. Until you realize he pneumad the pneuma. Does that make sense? Why breath? Same word. Is it possible that when... God breathes from heaven on a whole church. It sounds like a hurricane. Why wind? That was the release of the breath of God, and the Holy Spirit came down. Okay, let's keep moving forward. It says, and then fire shows up, and tongues of fire separate out and go onto everybody's heads. Quick question What's a tongue of fire? It's a flame. You're like, well, just say flame. Yeah, I know. It would have been way easier. Okay, I'm just reading what I'm reading, right? Because here's a funny thing. A tongue of fire, it's on your candles. It's on your birthday cake, right? It's just a little flame of fire, and it's kind of wicking like that, right? That's what they call tongues of fire. So everybody gets a flame right over their head. Why fire? 
This one's a little easier to link when you start going into the Old Testament. Why? Burning bush, fire, right? Mount Sinai, fire. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with fire. That's why it just keeps bringing up fire. But the fire that we are most interested in would be called the Shekinah glory of God. It is his presence manifested on earth, which can be manifested in a lot of ways. One of the primary ways is in fire. For example, the the Hebrew people, the Jews were wandering through the desert. Do you remember how they knew when to go and when not? By day, it was a pillar of cloud they followed, and at night, it was a pillar of fire. Here's what's so powerful. Usually, the Shekinah of God would show up in the temple, and everybody would be amazed. There's famous stories about the glory of God moving and stuff like that, but the Shekinah glory of God means he is with you. In this story, everybody got an individual temple Shekinah glory fire. Why is that important? Because that means each and every one of them were individual temples. Does not the Bible say, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, instead of having to go to a location, God went mobile. And he is now with you with his fire all the time. That's pretty amazing, okay? So... Here's the other thing that I think is so sweet about the story. All 120 people got one. It would have been super odd if Jenna is over in the corner, but you know, that's funny. I never saw a little flame over you, right? Because that would have been so awkward. There's like 119 flames and then Jenna doesn't get one, you know, but it it wasn't like that. As a matter of fact, all 120 got it. And why over their heads, by the way? Anybody know why over their heads? Because this is the seat of decision. And just like a king would be anointed over his head with oil, and it would mean his whole body, same thing. Tongue of fire over, anointing the whole body. But here's what's interesting. Let me ask you a question. Was everyone in that room exactly in the, exactly in the same space spiritually? No. Are they all the same educated? No. Do they all have the same callings? No. As a matter of fact, they're all radically different, and every single one of them got the same fire. Why is that important? Because God says, if you're my kid, you're my kid. I don't play favorites. We don't do that. So this whole business of, you know, I see these other people in ministry, and they're on fire, and they're, they're doing wonderful things for the Lord. I will never be able to do that. I'm not important enough. You miss the entire thing. Nobody's important enough. The only reason anybody gets the Holy Spirit is God's super nice. It's always grace. It's always a gift. It's always kindness. So next time you try to compare and size up against somebody else, you realize that's the wrong thing to do. Either you're a child of God or you're not. He may deal with you individually different like all good parents do with their kiddos, but his love for you is the same. And he wants to do ministry through you just like everybody else. Yeah? Okay, let's keep moving forward. It says, and then they began to speak in tongues. That's other languages. They're speaking out something they don't even know. It's being translated almost in the air to the other people's ears. And they began to speak in tongues. Now, if you want to know more about that, I did a major teaching session on this. 
just last November. So if you ever want to look it up, it's part four of our Discovering the Supernatural series called Discovering the Voice of the Lord. All you need to know right now is they were saying things they didn't understand, but all of a sudden you're going to find out other people could. And that is a really, really weird scenario. Pick it up in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay, why? Pilgrimage, it's a festival time. This place is jammed. At this sound, whether that was the sound of the wind or the sound of everybody yelling out loud in other voices and tongues, I don't know, a multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Okay, let's pause real quick. How do they know they're Galileans? All these people are visitors. How did they know they're Galileans? You come to find out the accent of Galilee is super distinct. Why? Do you guys remember when uh, Peter was asked whether or not he was a follower of Jesus and he denied him three times? Do you remember he kept trying to hide and the one lady's like, uh-uh, I know that accent anywhere. You're Galilean. Do you remember that? Because here's why. Northern Israel was the rural area, the uneducated area. And they were like, oh, you guys are the dumb ones. <laughs> Everyone's like, why are they doing this? They're not educated. Ah, keep tracking. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. There's at least 15 people groups that are mentioned there. This is significant for a variety of reasons. The first is what I would call power evangelism. Power evangelism means God does something supernatural to grab attention. So they would hear a life-transforming message. Does that make sense? God did this all the time. The people that followed Jesus did not all follow him because they knew he was the son of God. They followed him because he could, what, turn water to wine. He could multiply loaves and fishes. He could walk on water. He could kick out demons. He could heal people. They were doing it because they were seeing weird stuff. The weird stuff drew an audience, and they were able to hear the life-changing message. That's called power evangelism. As a matter of fact, it is one of the primary reasons why I believe Bridgeway needs to operate more in the supernatural with signs and wonders. Why? Because people today still need to be able to know that God is alive. They still need to know that God matters. And this is the problem. A lot of times that we're like, well... I don't know, you know, that's not really that important. Okay, hold on, there are some of you that are like me. I am analytical, I am logical. And sometimes I will dismiss something that I cannot think of the reason why it's necessary. Here's my problem. We miss it because we're not looking at all the pieces. Here's why. You can go back and look at this and go, did God really need to speak in tongues to get these people's attention? No, he didn't. 
As a matter of fact, this is a multilingual environment. Everybody's at least trilingual here. They all could have heard the praises of God regular. So if we're going to talk about was it necessary, the answer is no. But you missed the point. It was important because it was relational. Because here's the thing. Can you imagine you're the only Parthian in the group and somebody is speaking your language? It instantly shows you God sees you. There's no other Parthians around. But God spoke your language. Because this is a problem where a lot of people are like, man, I've been in these charismatic environments and somebody was like, oh, I have a prophecy about you. I'm going to say something about you. I already knew that about me. I think it's weird that you knew it about me, but I already knew that. That wasn't necessary. You missed it. Here's what God was trying to do. I see you. That's it. I just didn't want you to ever think I forgot you. Oh, I was praying with this one person. They're praying over me. Their hand was shaking. It was so ridiculous. Like, why did they got to do that? Because if God didn't do something odd, how are you going to know he showed up? All I'm saying is stop assuming that you and I have enough pieces to dictate what's necessary and not necessary. Does that make sense? Maybe you should just back off and go, I have no idea. God's doing something, right? Okay, that's a little bit more of a humble way to do it, okay? Here's the other thing that's interesting. The reason why they were able to celebrate and say, yay, God, along with the disciples, is they spoke in a way they could understand. I'm going to tell you right now, one of the reasons the church is losing a lot of influence in the world today is we stop talking in ways they could understand. We talk in so much Christianese. We talk in so much insider language. We talk in so many ways that nobody cares about. Why can't we simply talk in a way that people can say amen to? I think we gotta do that. And notice all this diversity. God was calling out to all these Jewish groups that had been scattered throughout the world and said, I never lost your address. I've always known you're my people. And I didn't do a cool thing till I got you back in town. I've always been watching you. You're always my children. How beautiful is that? Let's pick up the story. Keep going. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking them, said they are filled with new sweet wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m. Let's pause for a moment. What a weird response. Right? Because he's kind of like, well, if it was a nighttime meeting, yeah. I don't, I don't know who's lit and who's not. But I'm telling you is that it's way too early, right? Uh, now, some scholars think that he knew they were being ridiculous, so he was firing back, and that was kind of a witty banter, right? Or maybe he was serious, don't know, don't care. Here's what is important. You just saw two power truths revealed to you. Here's what I saw. Starts out, and everybody is like, wow, what the heck? Because they're hearing these crazy things. They've never been around people that did this before. This is really bizarre. And so their natural human reaction is what in the world is going on? That is an appropriate human reaction, especially in religious circles. 
You guys, when you come into a church environment and you're seeing something that you don't understand, it is totally appropriate for you to think to yourself, what the heck, right? But notice that's not the only voice that showed up. Who was the other voice? And then there's the ones that mocked him and said, well, they're all drunk. And you were like, whoa, 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 what is wrong with you? Wait, why do you got to jump in there and be all negative and say something rude like that? Like, why is that suddenly your right to do that? Who do you think you are? Here's what I'm about to tell you. Don't ever be skeptic first. You can be confused. You can be lost. You can ask God lots of questions, but don't lead with skepticism. And here's why. You will always be left out of what God's doing. How do we know this? Jesus grew up in the hometown of Nazareth. He had gone out, done a ton of ministry, did a ton of miracles, comes back home, preaches a really cool message. As a matter of fact, so cool that everyone in the room says, according to scripture, they were all marveled and said, oh my goodness, I think he's the Messiah. Faith, high in the room. Then some Yahoo says, there's no way that dude's the Messiah. I went to elementary school with him. And everyone was like, well, dang, that's a good point. I don't think the Messiah is supposed to grow up here. And the faith left the room. And it says, and God did not do many miracles through Jesus in that place. It shut down his work. Why? Because someone came in. And we've been trained to do this. You guys, we've been trained in our lifetime to never look like an idiot. So we always want to be the first one to criticize. We always want to be the first one to be the skeptic. We never want to be duped. So we're going to be real loud about what we disagree with. And here's my problem. Stop doing that. Because you're ruining the faith in the room. You're ruining the scenario. You're allowed to walk in and somebody all of a sudden is speaking in tongues on stage. And you're like, did I miss the memo? Like, what the heck is going on? That's appropriate. But you do not walk in and go, oh, they're demonic. Because that's what a lot of people do. Oh, that's flesh. That's this. That's that. You immediately have some skepticism and throw bad stuff on it, just like that person did. Well, they're probably drunk. Or maybe you missed something. What I'm saying is you could go back and consider the fruit of the scenario. Analyze it with the Lord. Pray through it. You may come to the conclusion, yeah, it was totally flesh, man. That totally wasn't God. Or you may come to the conclusion, yeah, that was straight up messed up. Like, I don't like that at all. But you don't lead with skepticism. You lead with God. What are you doing? And you analyze it. Because I think an awful lot of environments just get ruined when everybody automatically thinks they know best and God just got started. Does that make sense? Here's the other powerful truth I see in that. Why drunk? There's a lot of stuff you can throw out as an insult. There's a lot of things, but it has to kind of relatively tie to the scenario. Okay, so let's use this as uh, as an example, okay, there's something you may have noticed. I don't know if you guys are new or not, but you might have picked up on this. I'm super white. <laughs> now, when I say I'm super white, I mean like if I don't see the sun in the winter, kind of like now, I turn translucent, right? 
You can literally see my blood flowing through my skin, okay? So I'm super white. Now, now imagine you come in one day and I'm talking with somebody and I'm speaking in Italian. You know dang well I'm not Italian, right? You know everything about me is not Italian, but I'm speaking in Italian. What's your first thought? Well, I didn't know that pastor was bilingual. Isn't that correct? Well, I didn't know he knew Italian. You would never go, wow, pastor's drunk again. (laughs) Does that make sense? Because why? The more you drink, the more languages you know. (laughs) I don't think that's how it works. Right? Except in college. Okay, so you guys tracking with me? This is a weird thing to say. Why drunk? Because shouldn't you come in and go, oh my gosh, they're already trilingual. I didn't know they were also quadrilingual, right? I didn't know they also knew my language. But nobody ever says they're educated. They said they're drunk. You would never use that argument unless there was something weird and out of control sounding. That's how you call somebody drunk. It's the only thing that's associated with alcoholism, right? Is, oh my gosh, you're not fully in control of your senses. You're acting weird. You're walking weird. You're talking weird. Something about you is super off. I bet they're drunk. And everyone laughed and was like, yeah, maybe. Here's my point. Stop cleaning up the Bible to put God back in your little box. Because here's how we always pictured it. They had this incredible, amazing prayer time, which of course they were all praying exactly at the right volume. And then God did some cool stuff. They spill out of the house and they start eloquently talking in other languages. And everyone was like, wow. Okay, that's not drunk. Here's the other thing. You're about to find out there is a crowd of at least 3,000 people that gathered. How did they fit them in the neighborhood street? Clearly, at some point, they left the house and they went somewhere, right? Here's my best guess. I believe they had such a killer prayer meeting. They were so on fire. They were like, we got to do something, right? They're all angsty. And so they're like, go! And they all go to the temple because the best place to sing the praises of God is in his holy place. And they just make the little walk over to the temple. In the temple, they've been grabbing people from the neighborhood and then all along the way. Now you've got thousands of people all ready to hear a message by Peter. That's where it comes. But here's what's interesting. Be very careful of sanitizing scripture because if you do that, then you're going to assume everything that God wants to do with you has to be perfectly neat and in the right little package. But guess what? It's messy then and it's messy now. Which I have to honestly tell you, why does everything have to be so weird with the Holy Spirit? Right? I mean, isn't that kind of that... You're like, just do something normal, right? Well, I'm going to tell you, most of what he does is super normal. You didn't even track on it. But sometimes he wants to do weird things. Why? Because sometimes he's trying to get attention to say, hey, 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 we're doing something special. It's a little bit weird. But the other reason, I think most of the Holy Spirit's work has to be weird because pride is such a problem for us. Because here's the deal. God, I'm not doing that. Oh, I'm sorry, you're in control now? Hey, go pray for that person. Nope, not doing that. That is weird and freaky. 
They're gonna think I'm an idiot. And you tell God no. Whoa, where did you get that power? Right? Hey, I want you to kind of pray and I want you to lay your hands on the, nope, I'm not doing that, that's weird. Yeah, but I'm doing it. I asked you to do what I asked you to do. When we start getting into a posture of telling God what we will and will not do, he's gonna keep pushing the envelope and going, how about now? Oh, look, I can make it even weirder. How about now? <laughs> right? Go ahead, play chicken with God. <laughs> See how that works out, <laughs> right? All right, here we go. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then mocking, they said, they're filled with wine. Peter said, nope, it's only 9 a.m., go to verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel hundreds of years ago, citing Joel 2.28. Quote, Peter says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my female and male servants or slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, great start, great intro. He's getting everybody's attention. He's like, guys, this is not random. This was always prophetic. Joel called it out hundreds of years ago. This is how it was gonna go. That's what you're seeing. What is God gonna do in the last days? Doesn't matter if you're male. Doesn't matter if you're female. Doesn't matter your station in life. Doesn't matter your economic structure. It doesn't even matter if you're old or young. God is going to move through his people in a powerful way. We're talking about weird ways, visions, dreams, prophecy, tongues, and he's gonna do this in all the last days until the return of the Messiah. Okay, two things are interesting about that. Number one, let's talk about the term last days. If you grew up in the church in the 80s, last days was just flat out freaky. All they did was talk about thief in the night and you're all gonna get your head cut off. Okay, that's what I grew up under, lame. Okay, last days prophetically literally means anything after the Messiah shows up the first time. We have been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. It doesn't mean end times. It means last days. It will culminate in his return, which is called that great day. What did, what did he call it? He says, the great day of the Lord. That's the freaky one that ends at the end. So until we get there from the Messiah's first arrival to his return, this is going to be poured out. Why is that important? Second reason. Because people are arguing this stuff stopped. How could it have stopped if the prophecy was to continue until the day of the Lord? Doesn't make any sense, you guys. Of course it's supposed to go on. It's the hallmark of the last days, and we're still in it. Let's keep moving forward. I find all this stuff super fascinating. It says this, verse 22. So men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the Romans, the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up in resurrection, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is brutal. Guys, I'm going to level with you. You killed the Messiah. Ouch. Right? Oh, now he just starts laying it on thick. Right? He's about to quote King David. All the Jews respected King David, whose star is even on the Israel flag today. David. Don't mess with David. Right? He starts quoting him. He's like, even David knew this how it was going to go. Watch this. For David says concerning Jesus or the Messiah in Psalm 16, 8, quote, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Here's the key. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he died and was buried. His tomb is right here. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not going to be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Pause. What did he just say? Thousand years ago, King David saw the Messiah. He was always going to die and get back up. David called it out. Do you remember? This is the sticking point for the Jews even today. Jesus wasn't the Messiah because he died. He should have come in as a mighty victor and led Rome and allowed the Jews to beat him up. And they went, he's not the Messiah. This is Peter's point. Guys, the Messiah was always going to die first, come back, and be victorious. It's right in your Old Testament. How are you missing this? Keeps going. Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up, of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's the one that has poured out all of this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself said in Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both master and Messiah. Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Oh, now he's getting going. What do you do with that? Well, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were all cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? If what you say is true, and I know it's true, how do we fix this? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember they said, when you get Jesus, you get the combo pack of the Holy Spirit's presence, right? Okay. Verse 39, that promise is for you, for your children and for all across the planet, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now that's a revival. You cannot have power without the Holy Spirit. And you cannot have the Holy Spirit without Jesus. It's why this church always goes back to the cross and Jesus Christ. He made a way. So I'm gonna close in prayer and I'm gonna pray for two groups of us. One group, those of you that have never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second group, you've been walking with the Lord for a long time but you're ready now to go out and do some stuff for the kingdom and you need some fire, right? Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, we praise you and glorify you today. And we tell you, God, that we are here for your bidding. Lord, there are some of us that you have just now melted knowing that it all resonates in our hearts. Jesus, we have come to the end of ourselves. We know we have only lived for us and that's not what you built us for. So right here, right now, we admit we've got no plan for the afterlife. We have no answer for who we are. And we desperately need you to let us begin afresh. Jesus, will the cross allow us to taste of your salvation? Would you allow your forgiveness, your grace, your peace, and your healing to wash over our lives? Make us children of God right now. And Lord, there's some of us, we've been walking with you for a super long time. And Lord, we are just now beginning to realize you got more for us. You have things that we need to get done because Jesus, you wanna go out and do some crazy great stuff and we can't do it without the Holy Spirit's fire and power. So we just ask, Holy Spirit, fill us, fill every open spot in our lives. Would you fill us afresh so that we might go out not to live for ourselves, but to live for you. May you lead us and guide us in divine appointments into edgy, risky scenarios where only you can do it. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us into prayer moments, that you would lead us into salvation moments, that you would lead us into casting out demon moments so that your power might show to your glory and that we might be the body of Christ like we were built to be. God, we ask all these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.